So I want to talk to you tonight, just uh, try and keep this as sharp as possible, about something that I think is extremely important, and um, in some ways I wish I'd known this, been able to verbalize this uh, some time ago, because I may have been able to help some people um, resolve some issues, but for those of you here, I hope this will help you to resolve some of the issues that you are facing now. Um, I want to talk to you about bookkeeping and accountancy. And um, the truth is that all of our lives bear in part the wounds and scars of carrying a bookkeeping, accountancy, mentality into our approach to life and to people. And by this I mean the mental or recorded evidence that we keep about the demands and perceived injustices that happen in our lives about the rights and wrongs as we see them. We ask questions internally. Do things add up? It's going on in our lives. Do things add up? Who owes me? Who owes me what? And how much? We have thoughts of indebtedness about people and, 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 and expectations that have not been fulfilled. And we have this inner sense that we, we, we're all too holy to speak it out loud, but this sense of I must be repaid for that injustice, that, 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 that pain, that indebtedness, that, that thing that doesn't add up, the thing that I'm owed. And I'm not talking about money here. The story that we're about to talk about came as the result of Jesus trying to bring this to our attention and the fruit of not just a forgiven, but of a forgiving life. Okay, I want to say that again. Jesus wanted to bring to our attention not just the fruit of a forgiven, but also the fruit of a forgiving life. Most of the people I meet in church have some concept of the forgiven life. But sadly, I have to say that far too often, even among people who claim to be followers of Jesus, a forgiving life is not pursued. Many of the things and the difficulties that we encounter, and particularly the separations and the pains, would never occur in the environment of a forgiving life. In all honesty, and I have to be true, this is also true of me, we all like a bit of righteous bookkeeping and accountancy. I like a bit of righteous bookkeeping and accountancy. Our, our love affair with certain concepts of heaven and hell are proof of that. Good people go to heaven, wicked people go to hell. Or people who keep the faith finish up in heaven, but people who turn their back on Jesus finish up in hell. And then there's this wonderful sense of fulfillment, which if you've never felt it, you're probably a liar, or I'm very different to you. This wonderful idea of hell that says, okay, I don't see any justice about this now, but there's hell to come. You know, I, I, I can't make this work for me right now, but if they're gonna have to pay hell. So, so a lot of those concepts that we have um, even if it'll be all right in heaven, bless the Lord, you know. A lot of those things that, that, that we come up with are indicators of our, our love affair with, with those concepts because of that bit of righteous bookkeeping and accountancy that sits. Come on, you, you know you've thought, Lord, 
there's got to be some point where that person gets their comeuppance for this. Oh, Lord, there's got to be the point at which I'm blessed and not them. Because I've been faithful. Come on, you know that goes on inside us. I, over my years in, in the church and in ministry, have watched people salivate over a verse in Revelation that says, Then the books were opened. And the people were judged from the books. And those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. I've watched preachers salivate over that because we like the idea of books. We like the idea of names being written somewhere because it brings us back to that bookkeeping accountancy mentality. We take account of what's been done and we keep it in books and then we hand out and dole out the rewards or the punishments. Jesus one day settled his disciples' need for affirmation by saying these words in the book of Luke. Don't rejoice that devils are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That really settled them down. Now, in essence, they shouldn't have needed it. They'd found... The Messiah, the Savior, they shouldn't have needed those words. But our intense desire for a bookkeeping, accountancy dealing, means that words like that really encourage us. We feel better if somebody tells us your name's written in a book. Oh, well, it must be all right then, because the name's in it. And all the stuff written. So, so we, we have within our human nature... The need for that. Now, for those of you who think, well, I've never been in church, it's exactly the same in church, out of church, atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Catholic, Protestant. It makes no difference. Human nature has this push towards bookkeeping and accountancy. So you don't have to be a Christian to bear a grudge or not bear a grudge. All that stuff goes on as well. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so, so the success of Facebook as well has more to do with this spirit than a simple desire to connect. I mean, if you know that Zuckerberg, who created Facebook, didn't create it to connect with people. He created it to bring disgrace on a girl who he had been going out with who now didn't want to go out with him, so he used it to disgrace her name across the university campus. And then you wonder why the emphasis of Facebook so often is accountancy and bookkeeping. It's passing on to your friends what people have done wrong, but you've unfriended or blocked all the people you don't want to see what it is you have to say. Now, my feeling is this. If you have to block me from seeing what it is you have to say, I want to know why, what is it that you have to say that I would need to be blocked from seeing that? What is it that's so serious that I would have to be unfriended so that I am not able to observe that? Because it generates the bookkeeping, accountancy, mentality and tends to push us into groups. So I want to take you to the scripture in Matthew chapter 18. And uh, I'm going to start off from verse 23. And then I'm going to come back to verse 21 in just a second. But we're going to start off at verse 23 as a very interesting word. It says, therefore, now I remember many things from my father-in-law. And one of the things I remember is he taught me 
in the Bible where there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. Because what therefore means is, because of all this, right, all that stuff we've just said, therefore, I'm going to say this. So you can't understand what he's going to say unless you go before that, okay, to the therefore. Now, I'm not going to cover all that, but it indicates that what is about to be said is the culmination of comments made previously in the chapter. Now, briefly, here's the comments that are made. The beginning story, a heart cry to become like little children before they ruin their lives and relationships through the relentless keeping of accounts of who did what, why, where, and when. I say that again. The first story is an appeal, a heart cry, for you and I to become like little children before they run their lives and relationships through the relentless keeping of accounts of who did what, why, where, and when. That's where it starts. And then the next story it goes on to is how when one of a hundred sheep is lost, the good shepherd, the good shepherd's accounting only recognizes as the sheep is lost. With no list of the things the sheep did to get itself lost or the things it must do to get itself found. So the only accounting of the good shepherd is, flip, we've lost the sheep, Right? Now, the next story it goes on to is how to live in respect to someone in church who wrongs you. So it's a church thing, the next one. How to live in respect to someone in church who wrongs you, if your brother sins against you. Now, you're going to hear more nonsense about that portion than anything else in this chapter. I read an article in Christianity magazine. Um, I won't tell you who wrote it, but the magazine was... It, this was the title, Chucking People Out of Church. And it was all about how you chuck people out of church correctly. I'm like, Jesus. Where? And it all comes from a misinterpretation of Scripture because we read it through a bookkeeping, accounting mentality. The rights and wrongs and who did what and why and, and justice and injustice and fairness. So this thing that talks about how to live in respect to someone in church who wrongs you is not about chucking them out. It's about facing the issues. There's no problem with that. It says talk to the person. And if they're being a bit resistant, take some people you trust and go and have a chat with them, the few of you. And, and if that's not working, take some the, the people in the community that this affects, then, then let that be a place where you can talk this through and bring this into the open, which is fine, but where everybody gets wrong then, well, I say everybody, that's, that's arrogant, I shouldn't say that. Where a lot of people get wrong then is it says, and if they won't listen then, treat them as you would a tax collector and a sinner. So here's what conventional thinking is, bookkeeping, accountancy, you're right, that's it then. You're chucked out, off you go. Thank you, stewards, out, right? Yeah, why? Because they've done wrong. If you've done wrong, you must be punished, and you've got to be punished now because you wouldn't listen. You're gone. However, what you're missing is that this is written by a tax collector and a sinner called Matthew. So, so if you retranslate this, Matthew says, if everything you do to try and make this right doesn't work, treat them like I was treated. And how was Matthew treated? Jesus said, you're despised, you're a tax collector, everybody hates you, but come stand by me. 
come stand by, come walk with me. And anybody who criticizes you is criticizing me. And Matthew became this amazing follower of Jesus, had this spiritual revolution in his life, encountered the Father God, and of course left us with this wonderful record, the Gospel of Matthew, um, about the life of Jesus. So, so these are the things, right? So then, then he launches into this final clarifying story, which is the one that, that we've got up there. With verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Now, bearing in mind that the, the one thing that's happened before this is, is when your brother sins against you, here's the procedure. So how can you possibly conclude that it means then chuck him out, get rid of him, reject him? Because now he says to Peter, Peter says, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother when he upsets me? When, when the columns don't add up, right? When I feel I'm owed, when my expectations haven't been met, when, when we've got a heated situation of conflict, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, seven times, Peter. Have you not been listening to me at all? He says, I tell you, up to 77 times, which, which in Hebrew language dynamics means an immeasurable number of times. You just, you just keep forgiving, right? And so it's in that atmosphere that he goes on to say, therefore, because of all I've just said, okay? And then he launches into the kingdom of heaven is like... So he sets up what he's about to say with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the same thing, is like. Not people are like, not life is like. In other words, you don't determine how you live by what people are like or by what life is like. Jesus said, I want you to learn to live it by what the kingdom of heaven is like because if you catch this, it's gonna break that book, bookkeeping, accountancy mentality that's driven so much of our lives and broken so many of our relationships. So he goes on, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A king wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, 10,000 talents of silver is approximately 10 million US dollars in today's money. So that's about almost 7 million pounds is what this guy owes, and he's a servant, okay? So, he says, since he was not able to pay, now this is a very important point that Jesus is making, he was not able to pay. Let's start and call it what it is, he was not able to pay. I have rarely been in a human conflict where in all honesty, when we've been upset, the person who has upset us, or you, or me, was actually able to pay what we feel is required to put this totally right. So we have human phrases we've developed like, I'll forgive, but I can't forget. Or in other words, I'm just letting you know that you can't pay this debt. So unless something happens, the debt is gonna hang over us for the rest of our lives. So, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had should be sold to repay the debt. 
Um, in other words, well, I'll sell them as slaves and I'll just get back at least, at least some pennies on the pound and recover some of my money. Now, you might think that's completely awful. But lots of things Jesus said when he was teaching were completely awful, if you're honest. But he was trying to make a point. That if I start with law, and I look at this from a bookkeeping accountancy mentality, then this is the only option. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to do to people. This is what God has to do to you. But it's not able to pay. So... I want to make a point there that, that the king was quite within his rights to point out to the servant that he was indebted to the king. So don't get all uppity and all funny and get an attitude when you're told something by someone who has a perfect right to say that. Grow up. One of the great challenges, and you know, it's, it's very interesting, is, is um, it would be easier not to have staff in any employment situation, even here. And our staff are wonderful. But I want our staff to listen as well, that when someone who is your boss says this, 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 and this, and it's got to be that, 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 and that, and it's got to be by then, 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 and then. How many of you know that boss, that king, that master, is not making a point just as a perfect right to do that? And life's like that. Our bosses, our parents, our leaders in society, our governments have to say some things sometimes that we don't like. But if you start saying... Here's the thing, what right do you have to say that to me? Well, he had every right to say that to this servant. But we always think when we are challenged in something or when something's pointed out in our lives that is defective, uh, here's, here's the, here's the up-to-date word. He was having a go at me. No, he wasn't having a go at him at all. He was just saying, here's the deal. I'm the king. You've misused my money. You've built up a debt. You can't pay the debt. I'm saying I want to take account of the debt. Okay? Now, of course, if everything stops there, that can be a problem. Uh, but it says the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. That was a stupid statement. The basic essence of this is that if he lived for another thousand years, he couldn't pay it back. Now, let me tell you something. Emotional debts are far more significant than financial debts. And paying back an emotional debt is the hardest thing in the world. And very often that emotional debt can never be repaid just like this. It can never be repaid. The damage that was done, the trust that was broken, the expectation that was left unfulfilled. If you are going to be a bookkeeper, accountant, you will say, until all that is put right, I will not love you. I will not be with you. I will not support you. You're untrustworthy. I cannot be with you. And we go nowhere except keep breaking relationships or as in this case, we finish up sold into some kind of slavery. But it says the master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Not able to pay, 
He says, please, have mercy on me. The master cancels the debt and let him go. Two separate things. In this arena, it is not enough to cancel the debt. You also have to let the person go. Okay? He canceled the debt, let him go. He did not imprison him with that overriding sense of just never forget what you did to me, but I have forgiven you from it. How many of you have ever lived in that atmosphere? You know that the atmosphere is, I've forgiven you, but I'm not going to let you go. And then whenever things get heated, guess what comes up again? Well, I can't believe how you treated me that day here at the front of the church. I can't believe how you treated me that day when we were out at the mall. I can't believe what you said. I can't believe what you did with our finances. I can't. And it all comes back up because you didn't let the person go. So Jesus is saying, if you have a bookkeeping accountancy mentality, this is the only place you can finish up. You cannot let people go. You can't. It's not just going to happen. Cancel the debt, let him go. And then the servant, the story says, went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about ten pounds. So he's just been forgiven seven million. Cancel the debt, let him go. He goes and finds another servant who owes him ten pounds, grabs him, begins to choke him, and says, pay back what you owe me. He demanded, he's now demanding this from this guy. Now, here's, here's an important lesson. You would think that having been, having his debt written off and let go by the master, that that would be immediately how he would live. The problem is, if we hold on to a bookkeeping accountancy mentality, it doesn't matter how much we have been forgiven. It doesn't matter how gracious God or people have been to us, we will not treat other people the same way. Because you cannot receive the grace of God and then use a bookkeeping, accountancy mentality to deal with others because you will still chase people because your whole identity comes from the columns adding up, from the books being straight, from nobody having hurt you, from having no conflict with people, from everybody being what you want them to be, from every expectation being met. And you will go from that forgiveness and treat somebody as though you had never been forgiven. And I've got a couple of things to say on that at the end in just a few moments. So he goes, chases this guy who's a fellow servant. Now, you would think that very term, fellow servant, would make you think we're all in the same boat. But he actually didn't see him as a fellow servant. He saw him as an inferior Somehow he's got this superior spirit. I'm better than you. I'm okay. Get this. I have no debts now. One nonsense. I'm debt free. You're not. You owe me a tenner. Pay me the money. So I want you to see that unless we let something go, our own spirit towards one another and towards the world does not change just because we have been forgiven because our debt's been written off or because we've let him go. I have learned this to my great pain as a leader of the many things that I cannot even talk to you about in the lives of people who you think because you, have, because you don't know 
what I know, that those people would therefore, in response to that, love immensely so you'd never have a problem. The sad thing is, I've found that a great majority of those people will walk away from you because, having been forgiven, they still carry the bookkeeping account of mentality that says everything has to be fair in my life. So, he goes and grabs the guy by the neck, begins to choke him, pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees, did the same thing that he had done previously to the king and said, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off. I find that term amazing. Um, I know this is a bit pointed, but you've got to catch this. Most people with this spirit will go off somewhere. They'll went off. Won't stick around, won't stay to see it through, won't, won't work the process through, won't go through the necessities that are there to operate in a forgiving spirit as opposed to just being forgiven. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, two interesting things here. One is this mention of prison. Jesus was trying to get through that when somebody's in prison, you have... You have locked them in an environment where now you have removed their freedom to even do what they should do. So now he locks him in prison until he's paid the debt. Now the question is, how the heck is he going to pay back the debt if you've locked him up in prison? Jesus is making a point here that what we often do is we put people in prison and then want them to pay the debt back to us from the prison that we put them in. So how can people pay the emotional debt that we feel is necessary? How can people meet the expectations we would like? How can people restore trust if we've imprisoned them? Oh, you can't trust that person. You don't want to believe them. They're terrible. This is what they did for me, or what we do to put a person in prison, right? I'm not talking to them until... And so we imprison them but want them to pay the debt. Do you see the point that Jesus is making here? It's very sharp, but he's making a point. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in and said, You wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be, here it says tortured. The more accurate word is tormented until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus is making a subtle point here that we may pursue this to the point of getting the people out of our lives with whom we are upset and demanding that our books are kept in order by the debt that we feel is owed by that person to us, even though we put them in prison. But Jesus said, here's what's going to happen to you. You will live your life tormented. I, I spoke to a person just this last year who 15 years ago, been now 16 years ago, got all upset about something that happened to them. These very things we're talking about. And uh, understand what I'm saying here. We all upset one another. You tick me off sometimes. Some of you tick me off a lot of the time. And I tick some of you off a lot of the time. 
And I ticked some of you off some of the time. But if we manage to go through life without creating an environment of emotional indebtedness to one another, then we're already in heaven. Our righteousness has exceeded the Pharisees. It ain't going to happen. Now, hopefully we don't set out with the intent. But how many of you know you don't have to intend to cause pain and hurt for pain and hurt sometimes to be... Caused, and that those pains and hurts are, are, are far more significant in our life than any financial debt ever is. And so, what Jesus' point is here is that if we live that way, we live in the torment. So, um, I then found out graciously from this person that this person and others had spent 15 years trying to prove that what they had done was right. Now, how many of you know that if you have to take 15 years to try and prove that the decision you made was right, it was probably wrong? Because if it was right, it was right, and you come to peace, and you let everybody go. But you see, the situation here was that, that some of us here had been imprisoned with the requirement of pay back the debt, but there was 15 years of torment. Now, the problem with this environment is, and, and I was thinking this at the beginning, the problem with regret is that you only know you've got regret when you've got something to regret, and then it's too late because you regret it. And so we can reach a point in life where we have regrets, but then it's too late to do something about the regret because we needed to think up front. Now, here's what Jesus is telling to us. If you don't want to live a life tormented by regret... Destroy the books and stop being an accountant. And you will live a life free of torment. Your heart, your spirit will be free. So this is how my heavenly father, he says, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. All I want to say about that is that he's saying the father will keep you aware of the consequences of a bookkeeping accountancy approach to life and people. That's what the Father will do if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. He'll keep you aware of the consequences of a bookkeeping, accountancy approach to life and people. So let's run this through to a conclusion. The story seems to be about forgiveness. And it is in one way, obviously. But it's really about what stops forgiveness truly functioning in our lives, our relationship, and our communities. The giving of forgiveness or the withholding of forgiveness has a far greater effect upon our lives than just the end of an individual relationship or the breaking of a once treasured partnership. That's what we never realize. We just think if we break that relationship or that once treasured partnership that we're done with that. But what Jesus is teaching is that unforgiveness or withholding forgiveness has a far greater effect upon our lives than just the end of that thing. That's, that's the torment, that's the trouble. Because forgiveness and unforgiveness are not just a one-off response to a personal wound which can be compartmentalized and therefore not affect one's wider life. You can choose not to forgive, you can choose to went away. You can choose to do what you wish, but please understand forgiveness and unforgiveness are not just a one-off response to a personal wound which can be compartmentalized and therefore not affect one's wider life. It will affect your and my wider life. 
It is a spirit which governs the outcome of the whole of life. And this can only be truly appreciated at the end of the whole of life, by which time it's too late. But what I'm telling you tonight is what I'm teaching you governs the outcome of the whole of life. Where tonight we have indebtedness, where tonight we feel the books are not complete, where tonight we feel that the account has not been settled, those things are already affecting our life. These things govern the outcome of the whole of life, the spirit of this thing. Forgiveness frees the heart from bookkeeping and accountancy and sets a course which releases life. Unforgiveness imprisons the heart and never sees the debt owed repaid. Did you catch that? Unforgiveness imprisons the heart and never sees the debt owed repaid. Now let me say a little bit about the mental gymnastics, the emotional gymnastics we do with this. We've done our accounting, we've done our bookkeeping, we've found a person to be inadequate, untrustworthy, unfaithful, not fulfilled our expectations, treated us in a way we didn't want to be treated, etc., etc., etc. So here we are, we've done all that, and then we respond, but we have this amazing way in our hearts to break away from that challenge, but then say, but I'm not unforgiving. The truth is, if you listen to Jesus and what he's saying, unless we cancel the debt, and let the person go, by Jesus' definition, we are unforgiving. And he said, if you're unforgiving, my father is going to take his time to keep reminding you about what the consequences of that choice are, and you'll never escape it because you've now imprisoned the very ones who actually could resolve the issue for you, so you've got to forgive and not be in unforgiveness. Now, have I been unforgiving? Yes, I can be terribly unforgiving when I feel a sense of injustice. So I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying the problem with you is, I'm saying the problem with us is, but Jesus comes and gives us a solution. He said, it's all right to say I was hurt. It's all right to say I thought you were my friend. It's all right to say, you let me down. It's all right to say, you broke my trust. Because that's what the king did at the beginning. He said, okay, I've looked at the books and now I have to tell you what I've found. Right? You weren't there for me. But unless you're released, unless we do what Jesus was trying to teach us, he said, you can go down that route. But if you make the choice not to go down that route. We get rid of the prison, but the better thing is, not only do we get rid of the prison and the debt, but we get rid of the accountancy and the books. I'm going to show you how Jesus dealt with that in a moment. Now, some things you can never fix. For example, when my wife Chris's father uh, lay dying at home, I went AWOL for a reason, we, we didn't know death was imminent, but I wasn't around. And uh, Chris was so concerned that I should be with her to help her that she came to look for me. While she was looking for me, her father died. 
So she missed the death of her father, which is very important. I, I have been most blessed and probably didn't deserve it from that, but I've been present with my mother and my father at the point of their passing into the presence of the Lord. To make matters worse, when Chris's mum was dying, um, just over 11 years ago, um, I was doing a conference in Tennessee, and uh, Chris called me to say, I, I think mum's dying. Um, now, out of, I could justify this, which we all do. I was raised, you don't let people down. If you've been given something to do, you do it, you can't let people down. So I told her, I have committed to do this conference, I am committed to speak tonight, so I have to finish at the conference. When I'm finished at the conference, I'll come home straight away. So when I finished at the conference, I came home straight away. In the point of my journey in home, Chris's mum died, but because I wasn't there, she had no one to look after Connie. So in looking after Connie, while she was looking after Connie, her mum died and she wasn't there. How do you pay that debt? How do I pay that debt to her? How, how can you recompense the, the failure of being at the right place at the right time, of, of having the right level of concern about her grief at the moment, about being obsessed with what I thought was more important at the time. How do I repay that? The, the issue is the only way that that could be fixed is if she forgives me the debt and lets me go. It's only in that way that then true union can come. Without that, it cannot happen. Okay? So the cry of Jesus here is that if you live in unforgiveness, you'll retain the bookkeeping, accountant's mentality towards everything. Therefore, everything that happens in your life will be a consequence of that. And therefore, every relationship you have will be interfered with by that. We've all been in unforgiveness. But forgiveness does this. It removes the debt and it lets the person go. That's what forgiveness does. So here's two lessons and then I'm done. Lesson number one, unforgiving people always hang around unforgiving people, convincing each other that they are not unforgiving people because their bookkeeping proves it. Our books say, were you, I, do you know, I, by the, I was hurt by the same person. Can't believe this. And you know, she was hurt by the same person as well. Well, our bookkeeping proves it, right? That we're not unforgiving people because we were really hurt. How many of you know if you weren't really hurt, forgiveness is the nothing? proves it, there's an outstanding unpaid debt in their eyes and until that situation is rectified, they go off and make sure those with whom they have the issue are securely imprisoned by their absence, attitude and conversation. Lesson number two. There's a wonderful verse in the Bible that says, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. However, here's what I've discovered. That is, unless the one who is forgiven doesn't believe they needed forgiveness in any way because they were just a victim of someone else's fault. So I've found in life that I have loved people and protected them from that feeling that, well, the ones who, who, who have been forgiven much 
love much, only to find that then what happened in this story happens, and you think, how, how is that the outcome? It's because the person who was forgiven doesn't believe they needed forgiveness in any way because they were just a victim of someone else's fault. How sad. I need forgiveness. I want forgiveness. I'm going to fess up to stuff that I haven't even done as far as I'm aware because forgiveness is so wonderful. If I even think I might have done it, I'd like to be forgiven for it. And if I find I hadn't done it, I'll take all the forgiveness that came in spite of the fact that I've never done it. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. So here's where I want to finish. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 on the New King James Version says these wonderful words. It's talking about Jesus going to the cross. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now what's fascinating about this is the use of the phrase, having wiped out the handwriting that was against us. Now you can know he's not talking about the commandments because you can read also the same writer talks about the commandments were engraved in stone. Literally the Greek is talking about handwritten stuff, stuff that you write in. Guess what you do when you're bookkeeping and accounting? You handwrite the stuff in. Here's the debt, here's what was paid, here's what I'm on, here's what's been done. Here's all the record, here's all the accounting, here's all the bookkeeping. And it's all written in there for the authorities to see the handwriting of ordinances, the handwriting of requirements that, was, that are against us, that are contrary to us. It says, he took that in our situation and nailed it to the cross to get rid of it forever. In other words, he said, okay, yeah, I have an accountancy, I've written down, I can write down everything you've done, everything you've said, every attitude that you had, every falsity that was in your life. Jesus said, it's written down, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to nail it to the cross. Why? Because he said, I'm done with accounting. I'm done with bookkeeping. I want to release you to something beyond bookkeeping and accountancy, and it's the realm of forgiveness and grace. So here's where I finish. According to a writer that Chris and I are reading at the moment, Robert Farah Capon, he says there is only one unpardonable sin, and that is to withhold pardon from others. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, one unpardonable sin, only one, and that is to withhold pardon from others. In hell... The old life of the bookkeeping world is insisted on and becomes forever the pointless torture that it always was. Whatever hell is, wherever hell is, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a place where bookkeeping is insisted upon and becomes forever the pointless torture that it always was. Taking account of everything that was done, said, thought, acted, implied, whatever. I don't want to live in that hell. I want to live in the freedom that Jesus promises. But here's the key. Yes, this is about forgiveness and we all love forgiveness. But really, this chapter is about breaking the bookkeeping, accountancy, mentality that is what destroys our relationship. Jesus says, if you let it be nailed to my cross. Now, here's the key to it. Die. 
die. That's what Jesus did to the bookkeeping mentality. He walked among people who were forever. You shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. You can't, you did. You spoke to us that way. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, I'm following him no more now. He's going to the cross. Peter, I never knew him. Jesus, Jesus who? Jesus of what? Jesus from where? Never known, never met the guy, never seen him in my life. All this stuff going on that was the accountancy bookkeeper, but Jesus said, I'm going to finish it in my death. And the truth is, you finish it in your death. But Paul, who wrote this bit about it being nailed to the cross, one day said, I am crucified with Christ. But I still live, but now it's not me, but it's Christ who lives me. And the life that I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you learn to break that bookkeeping, accountancy mentality, the forgiveness that has flowed into your life will mean that you're no longer just a forgiven person, but you are a forgiving person. And that kind of grace changes lives. Don't be the one who's been given such a great freedom from such a great debt. Who then wants your pound of flesh from the people who hurt you. Release it. Let it go. Die. He took the handwriting. Nailed it to the cross. It was never God's intention that we should live by a bookkeeping, accountancy mentality. He tried to sicken us off with something called the law to make us think, if we have to live this way, I want to die. And he says, fantastic, that's my job done. I wanted you to want to die if you have to live that way. The wonderful thing is because of the resurrection, you can die but still live. Are you willing to die? Are you willing to let all that nonsense that invades our lives because of that mentality, are you willing to let it die? So that there can be a new dawn in your life and a new day because of what Jesus wants to bring you into. Just bow your heads with me for one moment. If you've never understood that you are forgiven, you can know that tonight because of the fact that everything against you is nailed to his cross. I want you to receive it. Thank God for the forgiveness that you have received through Jesus and be born again tonight. But for every one of us, you, me, who know we've been so guilty of living life by a bookkeeping accountancy measurement, I want you to be willing right now to lay it down in Jesus' name. Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. He said, there's a way to die, but still be alive. What he meant is the way to die to all the stuff that brings death to us while still being alive to all the stuff that brings life to us. That's a new birth. That's a spiritual birth. That's a born again experience. I want you to receive it tonight as I pray in Jesus' name. Father, in this place tonight, I pray there'll be a lot of death so there can be a lot of life. I pray that the crucifixion that Paul talked about being a reality in his life, be a reality in our life right now, that the handwriting against us taken away, nailed to the cross. And also right now in this place, I pray that every one of us in our accounting and bookkeeping 
who knows right now that in that accountancy we hold something that is against another that imprisons them and demands the debt to be paid that right now we allow that to be nailed to your cross. Taken in your grace, taken in your death, that your death becomes our death and your life becomes our life. So bring restoration in this place tonight to relationships, to hearts, to emotions, to people I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hope that's been helpful. Please stay, have some cheese and whatever it is, and uh, we'll see you to do the clean on Wednesday.